Well, what a rich and glorious passage we come to today in Jude, verses 24 and 25. If you have not yet, take your Bibles and go to the book of Jude. Jude ends his letter with a doxology. The word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. Glory. And doxologies are outbursts. They are almost lyrics that uh, explode with exaltation. There are several doxologies in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.17 is a short one. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, these are just some examples. There are others, but you can see in these a, some common elements, some things that tie them together as doxologies. There are certain things that they share, but if you were to study each of these doxologies more carefully and in the context of these different letters, Ephesians and Romans, 1 Timothy, you would see that, that they, uh, they highlight certain themes within those particular letters. Likewise, Jude's doxology reflects the purpose of his letter. Let's read verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us now to hear your word, to believe it fully. Lord, to grow by its power as you continue to transform us in a world of spin and sound bites, how badly we need to have our minds renewed by truth these great truths of who you are, how thankful we are to have the source of truth and of life in your word in which you have revealed yourself, your purposes, your will. Amen. Has anyone ever failed you? Whoa, hold that list down. Okay. I could see him. Oh, yeah. She flipped through the list of people who have failed you. Has anyone ever failed to show up when you expected them? Anyone ever failed to follow through on something they told you they would 
do? Anyone ever failed to support you when you needed it? Has anyone ever failed to love you as they promised they would? There may be small failures in the ways that others have failed you. There may be big failures in the ways that people have failed you. But we have all known what it is like to be failed by other people. Likewise, if we're honest, we know that each one of us has also failed other people. I want to tell you, God never fails. God never fails. Our God never fails us. He has never failed to keep one promise, nor has he failed to accomplish one plan, nor, and maybe this is the most important truth you could hear today, nor is it possible for him to do so. Jude's theme in these verses is God's unfailing work in securing or completing our salvation. Despite all the deceptions of men, despite all of the schemes of hell, God knows his own. And God keeps his own. And he will not fail. He cannot fail to deliver them. This is what the reformers called the perseverance of the saints, that those who belong to God, who have come to faith in him, who are justified before him, sanctified, set apart to him, regenerated, given new life, reconciled to him, no longer enemies, but now friends, redeemed, no longer slaves to sin and to death, but belonging to a new master, that they are secure. So while these are praises directed to God here in Jude verses 24 and 25, this closing word of glory is Jude's one last reinforcement to help us persevere in the faith. He has written this letter to call us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's verse 3. The faith is this uh, way of life that is established within a body of teaching. We are to contend with deceivers who creep into the church with false teachings, who twist the gospel and subvert the holiness of God's people. Jude unmasked these deceivers as truly godless, defiant, destructive, and doomed to God's judgment. And then, as we've seen, he explains how we are to persevere in the faith, staying vigilant by building up our faith, by praying in the Spirit, by keeping ourselves in God's love, holding out for Christ's mercy, and then rescuing others, going after others 
Perseverance is a necessary component to our salvation. And yet, Jude is making very clear here that our perseverance doesn't ultimately rest on our strength. It does not ultimately rest on our ability to overcome, to succeed, but ultimately it rests on God who is at the center of all things and who accomplishes all that he purposes to accomplish. And so Jude, Jude lifts our eyes heavenward and pulls back the curtain for us to look upon the one who is worthy of our praise, the one who is worthy of our faith. He is the God who does not fail. And so in verses 24 and 25, Jude reveals two grounds for exalting our God who does not fail, our unfailing God. And the first ground that Jude gives us in verse 24 is God is our keeper. God is our keeper. Now to him who is able, this is an introduction of praise and exaltation. When we say to him, to God, we're saying this is a, this is a way of exalting God's worth. And it's one thing to say that God is these things. God is glorious. God is mighty. And so whether anyone ever believes it or not, God is this and that. But a doxology celebrates these things. A doxology celebrates who God is by rejoicing in these truths. We declare these attributes to rightfully belong to you. And we delight in recognizing these things to be true, and we declare them to be true. That's what a doxology is. You cannot take away the thrill or the delight, the joy that is intrinsic to a doxology. Now, before ascribing glory to God, Jude exalts God's purpose and his work in our lives. Because to say God is able doesn't mean that God potentially can do this. As if Jude is saying, God is able to do these things if he chooses to do them, if he really wants to. God has the potential. To say God is able to him who is able is to exalt what God purposes to do and, in fact, is doing. And what God purposes to do, Jude says, in the lives of his people is to keep you and to present you, to keep you from stumbling and present you before the presence of his glory. So this keeping us and presenting us are two parts of the same work of securing our salvation. God purposes to keep you from stumbling. Stumbling, listen, does not mean simply committing sin here. If that's what stumbling means, we all stumble. Even those of us who belong to God continue in this life to wrestle with sin, wrestle with the flesh, 
resist temptation, that is not stumbling, falling into a temptation. By stumbling, Jude means stumbling out of the race. It's to stumble in such a way that you can't finish the race. Falling into a ditch or a pit, breaking an ankle, being disqualified. That's what stumbling is. Stumbling is failing to finish. It's never reaching the end. Stumbling is abandoning the faith for some substitute. Stumbling is moving into a place of unbelief. So Jude isn't saying if you've stumbled in sin, you're disqualified. If he was, he would have to be saying that God is sovereignly purposing to keep us from any sin, from sinning at all. Jude isn't saying if you've stumbled in sin, you're disqualified. He means that God keeps you from failing to finish the race. The word keep is the word for guard, which could mean to keep under guard. This is the word that was used for uh, a prison guard. It was actually used, it's a form of the word is used for the prison itself in the New Testament. It can mean also, though, to oversee or to protect. And we've seen Jude use the word keep already in our English Bibles. You will see this in verse 1. Jude writes to us who are kept for Jesus Christ. In verse 6, Jesus has kept rebellious angels in eternal chains. In verse 13, we are told that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever for false teachers. That word reserved is the same word kept in the other two verses. Now, these three words, verse 1, verse 6, verse 13, are all the same word. Here in verse 24, Jude actually uses a different term, but one that means essentially the same thing. And the reason I bring it up is because Jesus uses these same two words in a very important parallel passage, which is found in John chapter 17. This passage is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And this is Jesus' prayer within the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he is crucified. And the Apostle John is the only one who records this prayer. But Jesus is praying for his followers, and he starts by praying for the disciples, the 12, the immediate, those close to him. And then he prays for all Christians, all believers, all who will believe through their message. He is interceding for them, and the theme of the high priestly prayer is that Jesus is handing believers, his followers, back to God the Father and into his care because he is returning to the Father and to glory. Jesus says this in the prayer, I'm returning to you and to the glory that I knew before in eternity past. And so Jesus prays that the Lord will care for his people. John chapter 17, verse 6, we start here. 
I want you to see this. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And here he's talking about the disciples. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That word kept is the same word that Jude uses three times. What Jesus is saying is you called them out of the world. You had purposed. You turned them over to me. You gave them to me into my keeping. And they have kept your word. And then he goes on to say that uh, I have given them the words that you gave me. They've received them. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world I'm praying for those you've given me. In verse 11, he continues, I am no longer in the world. Why? Because he's about to die. He's about to be crucified. And Jesus sees the end, the whole series of events that he's going to return to the Father. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Guard them. In your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. You can see this. Keep, keep, kept. When he comes to the word guarded, this is the word that Jude uses in verse 24. When he says, he is able to keep you, guard you. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. That was Judas Iscariot, the traitor. And then he goes on, I'm, I'm coming to you. I want them to know joy. In verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So keep, guard, is to protect and to preserve. And Jesus says, I've kept them, I've guarded them, now will you keep them and guard them? Isn't Jude exalting God for doing for us exactly what Jesus asks him to do for the disciples in John chapter 17? To keep us? Jesus the Son did not fail. Neither will God the Father. And the goal of keeping us here in Jude 24 is to present us blameless. That is, without fault, without stain, without flaw. This was the word that was used to describe sacrificial animals that had no blemish, no flaw. Those were the only ones that were worthy of being sacrificed to God. And when people in the Bible encounter God's glory, you have Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 seeing God's glory fill the temple and crying, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone. 
You have Peter in Luke chapter 5 who has just witnessed Jesus filling his nets with fish. Such a scene of glory is that, that Peter falls down in the boat before Jesus' feet and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The apostle John in Revelation chapter 1 sees the resurrected Lord in all of his glory and falls on his face before the risen Christ as though dead. And in fact, he can't move until Jesus himself comes over and lays his hand on John. No one in the Bible is shown to be blameless in God's presence except Jesus. And can you remember the two events in Jesus' earthly life that mark that? His baptism, when he comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him, and the voice of the Father, we see the Trinity at work, the voice of the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the second event is at the transfiguration. When Jesus goes up on the mountain, is transformed. His, his humanity's got to peel back. His glory comes through. And Peter and John and James witness this. And they worship him. And God the Father says the same thing. My, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 explains this in the sacrificial animal language when it says Christ offered himself without blemish to God. That's blameless. It's no blame, no guilt, no fault. When it comes to anyone else, there's fear, dread. What Jude is saying is that when God presents us before the presence of his glory, we will be like Jesus. We will be made blameless. Can you? We can, you can't. I don't know why I'm asking you. You can't imagine, and neither can I, what it will be like to be out without any moral flaw before God. The picture that Jude paints here, watch, is that we will be presented before God's presence, found without blame, without blemish, to be accepted by whom? Jesus. I say this because of Jude verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Who are we being kept for? In this picture, it's for Jesus Christ. Now, this kind of clarifies, doesn't it, what's going on in John chapter 17. You see, God the Father has given us to Christ, to Jesus. He has left, and Jesus hands us back over to the God the Father's keeping to keep us and guard us. And God the Father will not fail. And in the presence of his glory, he presents us back to the Son. Neither of them will fail. Neither of them can fail. 
God purposes to keep us, to present us before himself in all his glory to give us back to Christ. And instead of dread and guilt, we will know only great joy. With great joy. You know, there's a scene in a movie that helps me picture what this event will be like. And it's from the Christmas movie, The Polar Express. Have you ever seen that movie? Polar Express goes to the North Pole, picks up all these kids on its way, right? Have all these adventures on their way to the North Pole. And when they get to the North Pole, eventually, it's about to strike midnight, and who is walking out? Santa Claus, And what is pictured in this movie is this unbridled joy as the little elves are doing their flips, stacking on one another, standing on each other's shoulders, cartwheeling, singing. There's music. The reindeer are jumping. The bells are ringing. There is this ecstatic, and you see the shadow of Santa before he walks out on the gangway and sits on his sleigh, and they're just going nuts. That is a far better picture of what our joy will be like in God's presence than so many others that have us just, you know, standing static, maybe our hands are raised, and no doubt there will be awe. But this with joy is this cartwheeling, singing, climbing on each other's shoulders, all to see him. And then, of course, in the movie, Santa has a personal conversation with the the main character, the child, up sitting on his sleigh with him. And I kind of think that every one of us will have that moment with Christ. Now, maybe I'm getting sentimental in my old age, okay, when I think that. But I think that in eternity, we will all have that kind of access. That is with great joy. That is the scene that this will be. And we won't be thinking to ourselves, oh, I'm blameless now. You won't even think about the sin and the pain and the toil. Those things will be gone. The second grounds for exalting our unfailing God, the first is this, God is our keeper. He is able to keep and present us. The second ground for exalting our unfailing God is that God alone is king. God is our keeper and God alone is king. Everything that is said in verse 25 points to God's transcendence, that he he transcends our, our understanding, our comprehension, that he is beyond us. It's as though Jude in verse 24 says God will not and God cannot fail to keep us, to present us 
before his glory. And in verse 25, he tells us why he will not and cannot fail to keep us. It is because he is the only God, our Savior. To the only God, our Savior. He is solitary in his worth. He is God and God alone. There is no other God. He alone saves, and he is our Savior. And when Jude says, to the only God, our Savior, he is not only talking about the final experience of being saved or delivered, the being kept, the being guarded, securing our salvation. Jude is saying that it is this God, the only God and only he, who has authored our salvation from beginning to end. He began it, and he will complete it. He has called you, verse 1, and he keeps you, verse 24. He is the only God, our Savior. And it is through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he is known and exalted. How can the only God who is immortal and invisible, and infinite? How can he be accessible? How can he be knowable? How can he be worshipped? It is only through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what's captured in this little phrase. It is through him. Jesus makes the transcendent God accessible. He makes the transcendent God known. It is through Christ that we exalt him, and it is through Christ that we delight in his glory to the only God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and authority. Jude has selected these words. If you look at other doxologies, you will see some of these words repeated. Jude is the only one who uses this term majesty and this word authority. These particular terms, I'm saying. He's the only one who uses these two, but he's picked these words for a reason. Glory and majesty are intrinsic to God's person. They are who he is. Both describe the grandeur of his position and his nature. And Jude is saying, remember that when you are presented alternatives, there is only one God, and he alone has glory and majesty. These words, dominion, and authority describe his sovereign rule, his kingship. God alone is king. And his sovereign rule is complete and it is absolute. 
And it is because of this glory and majesty and dominion and authority that Jude can say that he will keep you and present you. He cannot fail. And Jude lastly reveals that God's glory, his majesty, dominion, his authority never fail because they are eternal. God is unfailing and he is unchanging. Before all time and now and forever, Jude's Treatment of time, eternity here, is the most thorough of all of the doxologies of the New Testament. And literally says, before all the ages, and now, and for all ages. God is unfailing because God is unchanging. Now think about this. These things that are true about God were never conferred upon God. They were never granted to him. He never earned them or developed them. They are forever his. And they cannot diminish Now, here we get into this almost impossible exercise of thinking through what it means to be forever before time existed. We usually think of eternity in terms of time, that eternity is time time passing forever. That's not what eternity is. Time has a beginning point and an ending point. God is on both sides of the beginning and ending point of time. He's eternal. That's what it means. Now, you and I have eternal life, meaning that we will exist for all eternity. And for those of us who know him, it is life eternal. But we are not eternal creatures because we had a beginning point. We were created within time. God's existence, you even start to question the use of a word like existence, but it's before time, before time ever begins. Before there was time, God was glorious, majestic, had all dominion and all authority. And he does now in this age an age that is confined to time, in which we exist in time. And God will be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority when time is no more. He is eternal. This is how Jude knows and can tell us that God will not fail and cannot fail in his purposes. Now, all of this is captured in the faith. Contend for the faith that was once 
for all delivered. The faith contains or includes all of these truths. That we are secure. That God cannot and does not fail. This is all part of the faith. And it is why we are called to contend and to live as Jude calls us to. It's worth contending for, isn't it? Jude is saying, there's a lot at stake. Eternity is at stake. And it is worth fighting for. It is worth being faithful. And that in the end, God purposes will not be thwarted. He will make good on his promises. Amen. Father, we come to the end of this letter, but only to the beginning of understanding and thinking on these truths. It is like falling into a deep chasm to think on your eternity. And yet the reality bears upon even the most immediate circumstances in our lives, the hardest things we face. Lord, the, the major shifts in our culture, which you told us would come and would happen. And while we continue to pray for repentance and for change, that you would receive the glory and honor that you are worthy of from all peoples and all places. Lord, while we continue to pray for that and long for that, we know that we are called to be faithful, to contend for the faith that you have handed down to us. And it is that faith, that truth, that preserves us, that keeps us by your power, your glory, your authority and dominion. And so in the midst of the, of the struggle, we maintain hope and courage and confidence. And we cling to the book of Jude to empower us to do so. Lord, even this morning in our praises, be exalted. Let our hearts not be distracted. Let us not be um, overcome by the weight of sadness or challenge or trial or pain. But Lord, to know even now that foretaste of joy in worshiping you. We ask all of these things with all of our hearts because of the sacrifice of your son, his resurrection from the dead, and his intercession for us today. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.